FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I want to get right to the panel because we have a lot to talk about, as always, on the show today. It's Tuesday, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the AJC. Tamar, how are you? Good morning, Bill. Doing great. Thanks, as always, for having me. In just a couple of minutes after we've introduced everyone else, uh, I'm going to come back to you because... um, we want to talk about the, one of the best, best guessing games in Georgia and, for that matter, across the country. When will Fonnie Willis finally do something uh, uh, active in terms of her investigation of efforts to overturn the election? And there is some new information on that. We'll get to that in just a moment. We're joined also today by Professor Emeritus at Emory University, Alan Abramowitz, political science professor. Um, Alan, how are you? I'm I'm great. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, I you know, I noticed, Alan, that although you are sort of retired, which I guess is what emeritus status means in the academic world, uh, you uh, continue to publish when you find that you've got stuff that you want to put up there. And sometime during the mm-hmm. show today, we'll talk about a piece that you put up on Larry Sabato's uh, crystal uh, ball. And I'm looking forward to talking about that in a little while. Essentially, the headline being... Um, voters don't want Donald Trump or Joe Biden as candidates right. for as their choice for president. We'll get to that in a little bit while. And we're joined by Professor Andre Gillespie, who, of course, is a political science professor and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. Andra, your summer's already underway. Do you have any uh, exciting plans? There are some trips that are planned, but as I, I, I saw one of my colleagues over in, in, in math and computer science, and I was like, how's your summer going? He's like, what summer? And I kind of feel that way just about every summer. Okay. Well, I hope you do get a chance to rest up uh, a bit. Um, Tamara, let's start with news that uh, developed last week. You reported it in the um, AJC, but we haven't had a chance to talk about it on the show yet. Everybody's been waiting to see what the timetable is going to be for Fonnie Willis to make some announcements about what her um, plans are for possible indictments in the uh, efforts to overturn the election. And she had already said uh, sometime between July and September, um, or uh, we believe was going to be the larger time frame. But now there's something a little bit more specific if you read between the lines. Why suddenly, Tamar, is it looking as if the first of August through about the middle of August are likely is likely to be the time frame for her decision to announce uh, whatever she's got to say. Well, this came in a letter late last week to uh, Judge Ural Glanville on the Fulton Superior Court and a bunch of other officials in Fulton County. And the DA lists 10 days, as you mentioned, between July 31st and August 18th in which some 70% of her staff will be working remotely. um, So they won't be at the courthouse um, and the government center. Um, And of course, reading between the lines, um, those are days when grand juries meet in Fulton County. And so those seem to be days when if you are going to seek indictments for some very high profile people, including potentially John Donald Trump or Rudy Giuliani, David Schaefer, uh, perhaps those are the days to do it. Um, and so, yes, there is some some reading between the lines, but we already know that that major decisions are coming down the pipeline. And we know how closely Fulton County officials were watching what happened in Manhattan when Donald Trump was indicted and arraigned. And I think they understand the gravity of the security situation, what it would take, especially if we're talking about a former president or very high profile government people. And so perhaps having 70 percent of your staff off site is very helpful if you were going to indict a former president. 
Um, so, Alan, we also think that Jack Smith, who is the special counsel uh, appointed by the Justice Department to investigate a variety of potential misdeeds by Donald Trump, is getting close to wrapping up his investigation as mm-hmm. well. Right. That's right. And and there are, there are two separate investigations. There are two tracks. Mm-hmm. And one involves um, the uh, government documents that were found at Mar-a-Lago. And uh, we've been seeing some some developments along uh, with, with that. Uh, and, and clearly, um, there's a, a, a pretty high uh, probability, I think, that we'll see um, uh, indictments uh, in that case. And then, of course, there's the, the, you know, the big enchilada, I would say, which is the, you know, the insurrection and which is the role that the former president played in inciting uh, and organizing and planning that uh, that attempt to, to overturn the results of the of the 2020 presidential election. So those are uh, uh, moving along. And, uh, you know, it's hard to say at this point what's going to come first uh, between the Fulton County uh, case and and the federal case. Uh, But I think Fonnie Willis was sending a signal as well to, um, you know, the federal investigators to tell them, hey, here's my timetable. Um, So just be aware of what's happening here as you you know, make your own make your own plans. But I think by the end of the summer, we're very likely to see that all of these cases are going to be re- resulting in indictments, uh, and then we're going to see how that affects. You know, the, what's really very unpredictable: um, how it also will impact Trump's uh, presidential campaign and and the, and the other Republican candidates as well. Um, Andra, I know none of us on the panel is a lawyer. Uh, and so uh, I, I really am going to make an observation just to raise it as an interesting question. I don't expect anybody's going to have the answer. But with the Jack Smith investigation, uh, with we, we do know the New York uh, uh, indictment is going to move forward at the end of the year. That's the next time Trump is in court. It doesn't mean a trial date has been set. And with Fonnie Willis, you know, it's becoming interesting to think about how do you stage these various uh, Trials, who comes first, who comes second, who gets to be, you know, how do we stack all that up, Andre? And again, I know we don't know the answer, but it's interesting to think about. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I don't know if I'm as interested in thinking about the timing of trial because it's never going to be an opportune time for the 24 election cycle. The thing that I'm going to be most interested in is reading the indictment. And so the New York indictment was super vague, right? And you couldn't read it and actually figure out what was going on there. I don't necessarily think that the Georgia indictment or the federal indictments, if they come, are actually going to be that big. And so there may be some greater specificity in terms of articulating what the case is. Uh, that Bonnie Willis or Jack Smith has against uh, President Trump. And if they are more specific, especially if they're legally required to be more specific, and this is where my not being a lawyer sort of is a hindrance to understanding what you actually have to say in an indictment, that could be the type of thing that could possibly shift public opinion. I don't think it's going to shift that hardcore 30% that supports Trump no matter what. But if the stuff is sort of like if, if Bonnie Willis and Jack Smith present airtight cases, right, that's going to be what dominates the news cycle for the days after these indictments are made and released. And that's going to be the type of thing that I think could, uh, you know, determine whether or not Trump could actually um, campaign if he, you know, is doing this while being, you know, multiply indicted in different, you know, states and at, at the federal level. If um, the DA here in Fulton County chooses to indict Donald Trump, or at least to pursue that indictment, get a grand jury to do it, um, and if she does it using RICO, the the racketeering statute, the way that RICO works, the way that it's kind of told in an indictment, it reads almost like a narrative where prosecutors really kind of explain it, you know, here's a big giant scheme that these people were using to kind of further a set of crimes and they kind of really explain the characters and what what each person did in furtherance of the alleged crime. And so it might read like a novel if the DA were to go in that direction. And I think we'll see a lot of details should she choose to go with Rico and should she choose to seek an indictment for Donald Trump. So I think it'll be a much different set of circumstances compared to New York. Um, before we leave the subject completely, Tamar, since you've been following this more closely than just about any other reporter uh, out there, um, 
We also should point out that Judge McBurney now has it in his hands to make decisions about uh, a motion that the Trump lawyers filed some time ago saying that everything gathered by the special grand jury should be thrown out, should be null and void because it was an illegally impaneled body to begin with. They had no right to call witnesses and the like. Um, Fannie Willis uh, was given a deadline of, I think, a week ago, May 15th, to respond to that motion. And uh, so she did. And so now it's in the hands of uh, Judge McBurney. And we really have no idea when he might make a decision about this. Yeah, but we're kind of expecting it to come any day at this point. And he is going to rule whether to even hold a hearing on this motion from former President Trump. He was joined by Kathy Latham, who was one of the Republican electors that basically seeks to derail the entire thing. It would it seeks to disqualify Fonnie Willis from investigating the former president, uh, to suppress any evidence that the special grand jury uncovered, to suppress their final report, which includes indictment recommendations. Um, and basically, the DA's office said that there was nothing there, especially because at this point, no one has been indicted, that this was a premature uh, motion to try and dismiss everything. Um, obviously, McBurney has a lot to think about. I think no matter what his ruling is, folks will try and appeal it. Um, so does he hold a hearing? Does he kind of air out these grievances even more, given that we don't know who, if anyone, is going to be indicted at the end of the day? Um, it'll be a very interesting question. I, I always feel like it's important, and I know you obviously know this, Tamar, to point out that while the special grand jury might uh, say there are certain people they think should be indicted as a result of what they learned, it is not their decision. That still awaits an actual grand jury, which Fonnie Willis has to call, which is why you point out that uh, August is usually a time for grand juries in Fulton County. It will be a subsequent grand jury that will act on possible indictments. All right, um, we'll keep track of that, obviously. It's going to be one of the biggest stories in the country as it unfolds in the months ahead. Alan Abramowitz, let's talk for a few minutes, and I'll start with you on this, about Governor Kemp's uh, trip to Israel. He's there right now. It's a very small group of people who he has taken with him, including the Speaker of the House, John Burns. Um, uh, and, um, you know, it starts to, it start, it sounded at first like a trade mission. Uh, there's a lot of technological technology sharing between, uh, Israel companies and Georgia. They're trying to develop more business, but the more we learn about the trip, the more it seems designed to burnish, uh, uh, Brian Kemp's credentials as someone who can interact in foreign affairs, right? So uh, I think uh, when you see a governor uh, of a state making um, these sort of very high profile visits to, um, to to foreign countries, as we've seen recently, for example, with DeSantis, um, you know, it's pretty clear that um, this is in addition to any practical kinds of benefits that might flow uh, from it, that this is an attempt to kind of uh, demonstrate that this individual who's who's been a governor of a state has not had much to say or do in, in with regard to foreign policy, um, you know, is uh, uh, capable of dealing with those sorts of issues. But he arrives there at a very fraught time, uh, you know, when, uh, of course, um, there's uh, all sorts of uh, controversies going on in, inside of Israel, um, you know, over some of the efforts by the current uh, government there to make some drastic uh, changes to the whole judicial system and and uh, what are perceived as certain threats to uh, uh, democracy. Um, so uh, you know, there's that, and 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 then there's the whole issue of the you know uh, of, of the anti-Semitism uh, bill in Georgia, which came up uh, there, uh, and questions were raised there about that, uh, and and whether that was going to uh, be revived in the next session. Of the legislature and and what the prospects for for passing that were. So that's something else and, that and, that Trump's going to have to deal with. And, and, and that's and exactly the fact that Eleanor Panetti is, is there is also, of course, you know, raises the profile for, of that issue. Yeah, that's exactly where I wanted to head with this, Tamar. Um, 
during a meeting, Kemp had about an hour-long meeting, according to your colleague Greg Bluestein, with Benjamin Netanyahu, and uh, they talked about a lot about uh, Israel's relationship or efforts to deal with Iran, uh, the fact that Israel continues to have uh, terrible issues trying to find ways to work peacefully with countries in the Middle East. Uh, But Netanyahu, according to Greg, also asked Kemp about this bill that uh, never got through the uh, uh, session this year, which would define anti-Semitism and therefore uh, uh, make it um, a more visible part of the hate crimes law that the government, that the state passed a couple of sessions ago. And, and what's, of course, interesting about this is that while Kemp said um, on a visit to Yad Vashem that he has been moved deeply by what um, uh, Jews suffered during the Holocaust, how uh, 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 the history of the horror of all of that, he has still not made a comment on whether he supports this anti-Semitism bill, which passed the House but stalled in the Senate. Yeah, and that was something that had, I think, slipped through the cracks for me personally. I didn't realize that he, the governor hadn't spoken out about that bill. So I wonder if this meeting with Bibi Netanyahu and this visit to to Israel is enough to compel the governor in this next session to push for this issue a little more vocally. Um, And I guess his executive counsel, David Dove, was also sitting in on this meeting with Netanyahu and mentioned that this is a two-year session. There still is another chance to pass this bill again in 2024. But at this point, as you mentioned, no skin in the game for uh, Governor Kemp. Uh, maybe this will change his mind. Andra, uh, as Alan referred to, um, Esther Panich, Panich uh, who happened is the state rep who introduced the anti-Semitism bill, as after all of these awful anti-Semitic flyers were distributed across many neighborhoods uh, in suburban Atlanta, and, and to some extent in the city itself, um, she's not part of the delegation. Apparently, she just coincidentally was in Israel with her daughter. And uh, so she was invited to a reception at the uh, embassy, uh, by the U.S. embassy, with uh, Governor Kemp and the rest of the delegation. And her presence there, once again, emphasizes uh, how important to her and to many others her bill is uh, moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think the things that strike me about this are the connections between foreign policy and state and local politics. So this is clear. And the fact that you have a president of a, of, of a country who is willing to try to make a personal plea to a governor to be more active on an issue that's coming up in a state legislature, I think says something. It says something about the importance of the issue. I think it says something about how the Jewish diaspora thinks about anti-Semitism and their concern about it here in the United States. Um, and that, you know, that that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu would be willing to put some skin in the game to put some pressure on Brian Kemp. Um, and I think the question is going to be, will Governor Kemp be vocal about this now in a way that he wasn't before? And I think the larger question is, what signals does the state Senate actually hear from them? Because the issue wasn't, you know, the House. It's an issue of our senators paying attention to this, um, particularly the more right wing senators whose constituents um, and, and even some of their own leanings might actually toy with anti-Semitism um, or the types of conspiracy theories that lead to, to, to anti-Semitism. So I think that that's actually a really important thing. And I think it's going to be really hard for Governor Kemp to ignore this issue now that he's actually heard from the prime minister of Israel. Yeah. Uh, Alan? It's Esther Panish. I think I said Alan or Panish. Uh, Esther Panish. Yeah, it's uh, Esther one of the co-sponsors, she was one of the co-sponsors of the of the bill in in the in the house. Um and I, I think what was kind of interesting to me in looking at the way the support for that broke down, although it passed the house pretty pretty overwhelmingly, there was opposition from both sides of the aisle. Um you had a, a you know substantial minority of Democrats who also opposed the bill uh and who were raising questions uh, about uh, you know, concerns ab- ab- about the potential uh, infringement on uh, on the First Amendment, on on freedom of speech, that uh, could be implicated be- because of the particular definition that's referred to in the bill. It's not in the bill per se, but the definition that's used of anti-Semitism and the examples that go along with that 
Um, and I think there was a perception on the part of some of the opponents and those who are on the fence about this that Panish herself didn't didn't do the bill any favors in, in, in the way that she kind of dealt with this uh, and approached it and spoke about it in terms of sort of kind of diminishing and kind of uh, uh, almost belittling some of the concerns that were raised by opponents. And uh, so, you know, I think it's a question of when this comes back, and I think it probably will come back in the next session, whether those concerns about the definition come back again and whether we see again this sort of opposition coming from both the left and, and the right. So we will watch to see how the rest of that uh, uh, visit unfolds and whether m more politics come into play while uh, Kemp and his uh, people are over there. Um, I'll tell you what, why don't we do this? I, there's a lot of con conversation, I think, ahead of us on the show today, um, pointing toward the 2024 elections, any number of subjects we can get into. So why don't we get our first break of the show out of the way right now and come back and begin those conversations after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Andre Gillespie, Alan Abramowitz, and Tamar Hallerman join us uh, for today's political uh, rewind. Um, so, uh, Tamar, let's move on and start looking at uh, 2024 elections. But I think the interesting way to start this is to talk a little bit about what the Cook Report has just published, which is an analysis of the fact that when it comes to voting in congressional races in 2024 in Georgia, um, voters are going to have virtually no choices at all. The Cook Report <laughs> analysis of Georgia, and it's not surprising, I think we all basically recognize this, at least anecdotally, is that there isn't right now a single uh, competitive district in the state of Georgia. Tamar? Yes. Um, politicians are very good at drawing political lines in order to protect incumbents. Um, and that is exactly what's happened here in Georgia. Uh, there, of course, was a bit of a competitive race down in southwest Atlanta, the congressional district held by Sanford Bishop. He was able to win re-election. And Cook is saying even that seat uh, seems to be pretty darn safe for now. And it seems like the biggest competitions that are to occur are going to be in party primaries in all of these districts because they are so either so Republican or so Democratic um, that that's where the steepest competition is going to be. Um, our delegation, especially on the Democratic side, does have some older lawmakers who could retire at some point. So Sanford Bishop, who's 76, David Scott um, down in South and Southwest Atlanta is 77. So those could be prime opportunities, especially for younger Black Democrats who might want to step up. But other than that, that's going to be the only competition we'll probably see in these congressional races. So, Andra, of course, we should point out that gerrymandering in Georgia is nothing uh, uh, particularly different from what many states uh, that are dominated by one party in the legislature are also doing. Um, nevertheless, it does remind us that uh, we do not have necessarily uh, the choice to elect the candidates we might want in any district in this state, Andra. Well, we shouldn't be surprised that uh, when you allow partisans to control the district drawing that they draw it in their favor. Um, we benefit in some ways here from the fact that people do tend to cluster ideologically and partisan-wise in particular areas. So that's why we can have the number of Democratic uh, members that we have, you know, in the House of Representatives and even in the state legislature, because, you know, neighborhoods and towns and cities tend to be pretty red or pretty blue in their orientation. But if this isn't something that you want, 
right, then we should push for nonpartisan redistricting where our geographic kind of boundaries that tend to make sense. Uh, that tend to follow not just custom, but also industry and other types of things would probably predominate over making sure that you protect this state senator or this uh, member of Congress. So, I mean, we get what we sow, and, and, and this was easily foreseen. And now it may not hold for the rest of the decade. People could start moving around. The districts could shift. And if there was going to be a shift, it's going to be between the 6th and the 7th district. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that we should throw in that, you know, I don't know if the 7th district We'll see if Congresswoman McBath can kind of hold on to that district, but you know there may she might get a progressive kind of challenge on her left flank um, from that particular district, and it may not be from somebody who's African American. So we'll see kind of like what the politics looks like in that district in the years to come. But uh, I think when people saw those lines in 2021, we knew that this was coming, and, and this isn't a surprise at all. Yeah, so I think uh, I, I made one very important point here, and, and that is that uh, a lot of the reason for the lack of competition in these House races isn't just gerrymandering. That's certainly a factor. Um, but it's also just the, the way population is distributed and the increasing polarization of the electorate. And we see this across the whole country. And one way we can uh, demonstrate that that's the case and that it's not just a, a result of gerrymandering or districting is that we see exactly the same pattern developing at the state level, um, where an increasing number of states are dominated by one party uh, and fewer and fewer states are truly competitive. Uh, and where so we see this, for example, in the 2020 presidential election, where there were only a handful of states that were really in play at the end. And the expectation is that as we uh, move into 2024, that that will continue to be the case. And in fact, there may be even fewer states that are ultimately really in play in that election. And something like, you know, 43, 44, 45 states that may, out of 50 plus D.C. may be um, relatively safe, you know, or completely safe for one party or the other. That has nothing to do with gerrymandering. Um, that has to do with just um, the increasing, you know, partisan ideological polarization of the country and the demographic shifts that are taking place here, and that's happening within Georgia as well. Um, but definitely the way the 6th and 7th district lines were changed, obviously, was an attempt um, to ensure that Republicans would win one of those districts. The 7th district, as it's currently drawn, I think, is quite safe for Democrats. Uh, it's a safe Democrat. It's now a safe Democratic district. Now, I would think Lucy McBath would be pretty safe. I was impressed by the ease with which she dispatched Carolyn Bordeaux in that Democratic primary uh, in 2022. So I would be surprised if uh, she faces uh, a very serious challenge, uh, even though it's true that her voting record is somewhat more moderate than people might think, um, you know, uh, you know, given uh, the makeup of the district. But I, I don't right now see a serious challenge. Um, uh, the report uh, points out that uh, there may be change in that district, not not in this next cycle, but the cycle after, because mm -hmm. there are many who expect, uh, Alan, that Lucy McBath is going to uh, uh, make a, a run for possibly governor. Mm -hmm. Possibly. Yeah. And, and, you know, over time, if you take a decade, um, things really change. I mean, don't forget... You know, no one thought the sixth and seventh were going to become competitive. They did, they weren't competitive when they were first drawn. You know, back after the two thousand uh, and two thousand eleven. Um, but demographic change, you know, which is happening very rapidly in Georgia. You know, by the time we get to twenty twenty eight, twenty thirty, you know, things could look very different from the way they look right now. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out to Mark that uh, the uh, report <laughs> concludes, quote, Marjorie Taylor Greene is at virtually zero risk of losing election, uh, despite mm -hmm. her extreme views, maybe not in despite of her uh, extreme mm -hmm. views, but maybe because the uh, voters in that district really appreciate her extremity, extreme views. Mm -hmm. And the same applies for Andrew Clyde, another one of the more... Uh, uh, outspoken right-wing, far-right-wing members of the House. He comes armed with a resume perfectly tailored to his mountainous, mountainous ninth District, uh, says uh, the Cook Report. So 
things are going to stay in place for the time being tomorrow, and um, uh, we will have to wait to see how the demographics of this state change in the years to come. Yes? Yeah, especially the Marjorie Taylor Greene and Andrew Clyde districts are some of the most conservative east of the Mississippi. Um, when I was covering Congress, and this might have changed a little bit because of the most recent redistricting, but that Marjorie Taylor Greene district, I believe, was the most conservative east of the Mississippi. So it goes to show why somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, could win so handily in that district. Um, and so exactly, we'll wait to see. I think those are such safe seats. Um, at this point, it depends more on the, the personnel changes of, of what the folks in those seats want to do next. So do they give it up in order to run for higher office? Maybe somebody gets appointed to a federal role, just like what we saw with Tom Price in the 6th District, um, which used to be safely Republican up in Roswell. But because of demographic changes, Lucy McBath was able to win back in 2018. Um, same with the Carolyn Bordeaux seat now held by Lucy McBath um, in, in Gwinnett County. Um, that used to be a Republican district held by uh, Mark Woodall, but demographic changes have, have changed that as well. Um, the one that I'm going to be watching moving forward is the new 6th district um, held by Rich McCormick right now, less rooted in you know, North Fulton now more has, has more Paulding County in it, which makes it a little more, uh, much more conservative, uh, but perhaps that will change as well. Andra, before we leave the subject, uh, the one uh, 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 aspect of our elections in Georgia that is not uh, certainly a result of uh, uh, gerrymandering or just population groupings of similar people, and that's state constitutional offices. And I'm interested in the fact that we continue to have um, Republicans with complete domination of all of the state constitutional offices. In 2022, many people thought that Democrats might actually break through in a couple of those uh, uh, races. Jen Jordan was considered a strong candidate uh, for attorney general, particularly. And yet, uh, Republicans continue to have a lock. And I don't know what changes that in the uh, next couple of cycles, Sandra. Well, I mean, so I think people left the 2018 and 2020 cycles thinking that Democrats and Republicans were numerically evenly matched in the state. And I probably said stuff to sort of suggest that. The truth is Republicans still hold a slight numerical advantage. In contests where you have very problematic Republican candidates, Democrats can mobilize a group because their group is large enough to be able to surmount a weak Republican candidate to be able to win elections. And so I think that's why Joe Biden won in 2020. It's why Raphael Warnock has won twice. It's why John Ossoff um, uh, has won. Um, so you, the, the Democratic minority is not like a, such a small minority that it's hopeless for them to win. So it's not like we're talking about Mississippi or Alabama, right? So they've got enough that they're mm -hmm. able to be competitive, but they aren't going to be competitive without a strong field operation and mobilization game. And I think we don't like to talk about it, but that was the problem in 2022. The field ops on the Democratic side weren't as strong as they could be and as strong as we know that they can be based on 2018 in particular. Um, and so as a result of that, the natural Republican numerical advantage took over because they turned out at rates that uh, one would have expected them to. Democrats have to get all of their people to show up to vote in an election in order to be able to win. That didn't happen in 2022. So they've got to work on the field, which in my personal opinion was was lacking. Um, and I'm just looking at sort of like what showed up at my house, which was very little. Um, and then thinking, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of further about making sure that you put the right candidates in place with the right message, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's all true, um, but I, I would also point to a couple other factors here that are that are going to have an impact on the competitiveness of the state going forward. Um, one is just the political environment uh, that exists at the time of a given election. So 2022, we had a midterm election with an unpopular Democratic president in the White House. Now, as it turned out, um, Democrats did pretty well across the country um, in, despite that. Um, but here in Georgia, you had a relatively popular incumbent Republican governor at the top of the, uh, top of the statewide ticket. 
Uh, and I think that helped to pull a lot of these other Republican candidates uh, acro across the line. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean, however, that the state is not going to be very competitive in future elections. I, th I think it is probably going to be very competitive in the 2024 presidential election and very likely uh, even in the 2026 uh, uh, statewide elections, because then you won't have an incumbent uh, Republican governor at the top of the ticket. It'll be an open seat. And let's not forget, we've talked about demographic change that continues, that is continuing to happen going forward. This state is changing. Um, the demographics of the state are changing. The non-white share of the population and the electorate is growing over time. And that is going to impact future elections as it already has, as we've seen the shift that's taken place, particularly in the Atlanta suburbs, where counties like Gwinnett and, and Cobb that were once safely Republican have now swung into the Democratic column. Um, so, um, you know, by the time we get to 2026, uh, depending on the national political environment, what's going on at that time, who's in the White House, you know, certainly I can see Democrats being very competitive uh, in these contests for statewide office uh, in Georgia. And again, I think 2024 in tw Georgia is likely to be one of a relatively small number of states, possibly no more than six, um, that are battleground states that will determine, uh, they're going to be the battlegrounds that will determine the outcome of the presidential election. All right, speaking of the presidential election, let's start talking a little bit about it. Um, and I think the place to begin tomorrow is with the fact that yesterday, Tim Scott formally got into the race, Republican senator, only black Republican in the United States Senate right now. Um, he um, made his announcement in South Carolina. He's headed off for a couple of days to Iowa and New Hampshire, of course, the first two states that will vote on the Republican uh, side for president. Um, and um, the thing that people always say about Tim Scott, and certainly he showed us all yesterday, is that he is not going to be a candidate of doom and gloom. He wants to have a sunnier, more optimistic message. A lot of uh, analysts say he's hearkening back to the days of Ronald Reagan. It's morning in America. Let's listen to just a little of that kind of messaging that came out of his speech yesterday and then talk about it. For those of you who wonder if it's possible for a broken kid and a broken home to rise beyond their circumstances, the answer is yes. I'm living proof that America is the land of opportunity and not a land of oppression. So the question, um, I suppose, he did come from a single-family house, a single-mother uh, home, single-parent home. They did live in poverty early on in his life. He found a mentor in business. I think it was a McDonald's businessman who took him under his wing and convinced him that there was a path for a young, poor, black kid to have success in the world. So his story is really inspirational in many ways, Tamar, but... Um, just in general, before we get into more specifics, what did you make of uh, the way Tim Scott uh, started off his race yesterday? I mean, definitely like a positive, aspirational, kind of happy warrior message. He reminds me a little bit of Paul Ryan and that same kind of style. Um, he doesn't want to focus on the grievances. He doesn't want to focus on the 2020 election, but all kind of let's take a step forward and see what we can accomplish. I think the question for me is whether that message will be able to work in a, a field that still includes folks like Donald Trump. Um, where he very much is still in touch with his grievances about, you know, his presidency and what happened in the weeks after afterward. Um, you know, he still wants to litigate the 2020 election. And so will the field be able to really move past that? Or given that Trump leads in virtually every poll of Republican candidates, maybe that's going to be really hard to do. Maybe that's not something that the Republican base wants to think about right now. Um, I wonder if that's kind of more of a, you know, style left in the Ronald Reagan era, or if there is a way for somebody like a Tim Scott, who really has built, you know, some gravitas and, and respect in Washington among Senate Republicans, if that is able to translate on the campaign trail. Andra? 
you know, while I think that Tim Scott is a happy warrior, that speech yesterday was a little disjointed. Uh, so Tia Mitchell and I were talking about that on social media yesterday. So yes, he's happy warrior, but he's operating in a in a highly polarized time um, where there's a malaise and where people are pessimistic. And he had the genuflex towards the culture wars. He had the genuflex towards negative partisanship, to borrow from Allen. And so he would say that, and then he would do Republican talking points and kind of red meat stuff that's actually a little out of character for him. And it, I don't think it landed particularly well, and I don't think he executed it in the way that he could have. With more practice, he may actually get there, but he's still operating under a, a series of constraints. Um, that would suggest that, you know, this is going to be a hard sell and it's hard to pull off. And one of the things that was actually really interesting, after the speech, you know, Donald Trump went on True Social, and instead of slamming him, he used it as an opportunity to slam Ron DeSantis and was like, Tim's a good guy. So I take a couple of things from that. One, Trump doesn't think that, that Scott is a threat, and I don't think that we're going to see, like, a big bump in the polls, at least not one that's going to be statistically significant in the next week um, as a result of this. And, two, that Trump is probably eyeing Scott as, oh, maybe he could be my VP, right? He does speak to that evangelical base. That was very clear in his speech. I didn't, you know, I expected that, right? I didn't know enough of his backstory and read enough of his works to see that the that his faith is certainly real and certainly credible, you know, in a way that, you know, would make Trump want to eye him as perhaps the new Mike Pence, right, who could stand in that place. But, uh, you know, I didn't see this as the moment where we're necessarily looking at the the, the, pre the Republican nominee of 2024. You know, I, I think, uh, Alan, Andra saw, observed in that speech some of the same things I did. First of all, it was really disjointed. I, I mean, it was all over the map. Um, and, uh, and, and that was, I thought... Uh, made me feel a little uncomfortable. Um, but also, as she points out, um, he's the happy warrior, but he criticized CRT, let's have less CRT, more ABCs. America is not the evil country that Democrats say that it is. So she really makes an excellent point that you may want to run an, a, a sunny, optimistic campaign, but if you're not willing to dip into to the grievances that he claims he doesn't want to talk about, you probably don't have any chance with Republican voters. Um, if, you, if you look at uh, the polling right now on the Republican nomination, Donald Trump is still dominating the field. Uh, Ron DeSantis is a pretty distant second. Everyone else is down in single digits. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, uh, he's... I think Tim Scott is. Uh, at last I looked, he was his his average was was uh, uh, about a, a zero, um, and uh, he was trailing Vivek Ramaswamy uh, in the polls among Republican primary voters. Now he hadn't announced yet. You know, maybe he'll pick up um, some support. Um, but what I don't see him doing, and what I don't see these other Republican candidates would be presidential candidates doing, um, is clearly challenging and going after Trump. Um, I, you know, they're, they're all pull their punches. Um, they're all reluctant to offend Trump. Um, uh, they don't want to come right out and say, no, the election was not stolen. Uh, you know, no, this is a bunch of nonsense. I know we don't want to nominate a, a candidate who's under indictment for trying to overturn the results of a democratic election, among other things. So um, unless and until they're willing to do that, I don't see how any of them you know, can re represent a serious, a serious threat to Trump. And the, the fact that Trump praised him so effusively on a, uh, a truth social right after he made his announcement tells you that Trump does not see him as a serious threat. Because uh, if he did, the message would be very different. <laughs> okay, got to get to the final break of the show back with more in just a moment. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. 
Uh, we're back with just a few more minutes on Political Rewind. Alan Abramowitz, are uh, you with us? Because I want to turn to uh, the piece that you put up on uh, uh, Larry Sabato's crystal ball. I think Alan has stepped away for just a minute. So let me, uh, before I go there, um, well, well, actually, uh, Andra, let me give you an opportunity to comment, because Alan's your colleague, um, and uh, you certainly uh, pay attention to what he writes. He... Alan has posted a piece which essentially says what a lot of us already thought we know, uh, that uh, that voters don't want Donald Trump or Joe Biden uh, in the uh, 2024 election. Um, and that uh, he points out that Biden's age is a major concern to voters, that um, his approval ratings are so low uh, that uh he is uh, not, you know, a guy who stands a great chance of being reelected, but for the fact that his opponent may very well be Donald mm-hmm. Trump. Um, so, we, well, Alan, you're back. Co- comment on, on what you um, wrote in Crystal Ball about this uh, election in which nobody wants Trump or Biden. Mm-hmm. Well, what what you find, and this is not unique to you know my article or the the particular polling data that I looked at, is that both Trump and Biden are are pretty unpopular. Um, both of them have uh, uh, are underwater in terms of their favorable versus unfavorable uh, ratings, um, and and there's a, a substantial minority of voters, about one out of six, who when presented with a choice between Trump and Biden, uh, say that they would vote for someone else, even though no other uh, name was put forward uh, as an option. So that's a very interesting uh, finding, I think, that that there's this large group of voters. And this is kind of similar to what we saw in 2016. We had two relatively unpopular presidential candidates. It was not so much true in 2020. Um, So... um, you know, the question is, well, who are these uh, voters who are uh, unhappy with, with the choice between Trump and Biden and would, would prefer someone else? Um, and, you know, is there going to be a third party or, or an independent candidate who might potentially appeal uh, to them? Um, that's the question. Um, and, you know, we know in 2020 that the third party and independent candidates did very poorly. Um, they got, you know, a very, very small share of the vote. And there, it's very difficult, you know, for third-party and independent candidates to get on the ballot, uh, let alone and to win a share of the vote in, in our electoral system that really uh, discriminates against, uh, you know, third and fourth-party candidates. So, um, you know, I think that's going to be one of the interesting questions for the 2024 election: is will we see a serious independent or third-party alternative? And if so, which of the two major-party candidates, say, assuming that it's Trump and Biden? Um, who will they, you know, uh, take more votes uh, away from? Democrats are very worried, I think, about the potential for a third-party candidate to peel away uh, anti-Trump votes. Andra, uh, one of the interesting uh, aspects of this story is that Allen proposes that it is possible that it is the disgruntled voters themselves who may determine uh, whether uh, uh, Biden or Trump would win the election. And he points out that uh, it more of them are um, uh, Democrats than Republicans. Um, but regardless, uh, those dis- disgruntled voters uh, look as if they'd rather vote for Biden than for Trump, Andra. I think that that's the big takeaway um, of Alan's article. And he's suggesting another mm-hmm. way to kind of the data. So we would naturally parse the data to look at what independents are doing to see if they break towards the Democratic or the Republican candidate. Um, another way to look at this is to then also look at how that corresponds to people who would have preferred somebody else in the race. Um, and so what, what I think we have to pay attention to is kind of what are the natural partisan proclivities of people who want somebody else and then we have to look at the other contextual factors, like who might present themselves as a somewhat credible third-party source and whether or not that would be more likely to peel away Democratic voters or Republican voters. So, I mean, I think that that's sort of like the big takeaway from Alan's article. And Tamar, to put it in a Georgia perspective, um, with Joe Biden as the most likely nominee of the party, there's nobody really challenging him at this point. 
The question is going to be is how energized will Georgia Democratic voters get around his candidacy, uh, despite the fact that his approval ratings are not particularly high here. Especially when we're not going to have statewide races to help up the excitement factor. We're not going to have a race for governor and have, you know, a high profile candidate like a Stacey Abrams who could excite those Democratic voters. Instead, it's going to be uh, members of Congress up for reelection, uh, but not senators here and then president. So if it's seen as a boring race for, for Democratic voters, how are you going to get those folks out, especially younger voters who really helped power Democratic victories um, in 2022? Real quick, because uh, we're almost out of time, Alan. Well, I think the answer to that question has to be for Democrats. It's got to be the threat of a of a of a Trump presidency, of the return of a Trump presidency. That's going to be the Democratic message um, to, to, to try to inspire turnout among Democratic voters. And you know, it's worked before, and I think it might work again. All right, that's it. We're completely out of time for today's political rewind. Alan Abramowitz. Andre Gillespie, Tamara Hallerman, thank you so much for being with us today. By the way, tomorrow we're going to talk about what is the media's role going to be in the 2024 election cycle, especially as Donald Trump's campaign moves forward. We know CNN got a lot of criticism for doing the town meeting with him. We're going to focus on how the media should be covering the 2024 election. So I hope you'll join us for that conversation. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, please be good to one another. Bye, everybody.